Would you like to turn to Romans chapter 8? I'm going to read from verse 28, Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it's written, for your sake we face death all day long, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we've looked at this over recent weeks, probably even recent months, I'm not sure how uh, far back we started into this section, we've seen that Paul gives five great statements about our position. He says that God foreknew us He predestined us, He called us, He justified us, He glorified us. That's there in verses 29 and 30. Five great statements about what God has done, followed by five questions. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so on. We've we've read those questions through. And this morning, we're coming to the last question that He hurls out into space, and no one can answer these who, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Interesting, he says, who shall separate us? And then he goes on to speak about things rather than people. And it's because all the other questions have been about who can do this, who can do that, and the final one, who can separate us from God's love? The, the underlying question is, it's all very well to know all of these things, but can we be sure that we will press through to the end? Can we be sure that we'll survive to the end? Can we be sure that our faith will hold if really severe trouble came? If we were really under pressure, could we just lose it, lose sight of God, lose sight of faith because too, too much is going wrong, and having known God and worshipped God and enjoyed being with God's people, finally lose the whole thing, drift away. Can anything 
Can anyone, anything, separate us from God's love? Can we be sure that we will finally be with God forever in heaven? It's a major question. It, it's, it's the basis, really, of our assurance of what enables us to enjoy God. Is it temporary? Is it a phase? Or will it last forever? Can anything separate us from God's love? And Paul lists some possibilities. Trouble, hardship, persecution, nakedness, danger, sword. If, the, if we got into any of those things of extreme deprivation, extreme fear, extreme terror, could we renounce the faith? How much pain could we cope with before we renounce the faith? A major question. That's what he's looking at. And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So let's start by looking at this that he's talking about, the love of Christ. When we speak about God's love, and it speaks here about the, the love of Christ, and in, in verse 39, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we talk about God's love, we need to understand it within the context that Paul is setting out here, because it's very easy to get into kind of fluffy ideas of God's love. That God is basically nice. God is basically benevolent and kind of bland, all-accepting, never being cross with anyone. He will accept everyone. And it's always been a popular idea, and books come out from time to time. One's come out quite recently to cause a bit of a stir about God will just, His love will conquer everything, love wins, and everyone finally will be saved because God is so benevolent. And is that what it's talking about? Well, the context here uh, makes it very clear that is not what he's talking about. There's nothing awesome about niceness, and it's not talking about God just being basically nice. The love of God is something that, when you understand what it's about, causes you to marvel that God could be loving, that God could love us. If our basic understanding of God is, God is love, then basically it's no surprise that He loves us. Well, He would, wouldn't He? God is love. Well, He's going to love us. And we're not going to marvel, we're not going to express any amazement at that. But actually, the Bible doesn't start with the statement that God is love. As you read right through Scripture, the, the big picture of God, if you like, is God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. When you see people encountering God, the first thing they encounter is not love, but awesome holiness. And included in that awesome holiness is the amazing fact that he loves us. But you just look, for example, uh, one could look in all sorts of places, but the final book in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you get John in vision, the Apostle John in vision, seeing Jesus. Verse 17 of chapter 1, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's spoken about his brilliance. His feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice like the sound of many waters. His eyes like blazing fire. When I saw him, he didn't say, oh, he loves me. No, it's, oh, fear. Fell at his feet as though dead. And then there's the word of love. He placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. 
I'm the first and the last. The first, the initial impression, awesome, amazing fear in the presence of God. Read on through the book of Revelation and it takes us to see what it's like in the presence of God. And in chapter 4, verse 8, it speaks of the creatures around the throne. And it says, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then it says, whenever they, they, they give thanks to him, the 24 elders fall down before him. They're not just saying, oh, it's nice, he loves me. That's awesome. Holy, holy, holy. And then it goes on in chapter 6 to speak about those who don't know God, who have never accepted the gift of salvation in Christ. And it says in chapter 6, verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's, this, that's our God. Awesome in holiness. In our little self-centered minds where we're so satisfied with ourselves and we make excuses for ourselves, it's hard to imagine the holiness of God. But the Bible depicts it. And the amazing thing is that this God who... And people saying they'd rather be smothered in a landslide than see the face of this Savior they've rejected. That's that's terrifying. The amazing fact then is that this God loves us. That this God could freely choose undeserving wretches like me to be with him forever. A God who is awesome in holiness. God's love is not just something to blithely accept, as if, well, I'm not that bad. He would love me, wouldn't he? Because he already is loving. No, he's awesome in holiness. And he sees into the depths of my heart. He knows everything I think. He knows every motive. He knows things I've never told anyone else. He sees the whole horrible picture. And he loves me. It's amazing. And so 1 John chapter 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. See the amazement in it. That God should ever love us. God's love is shocking. It's amazing. It's incomparable that God should love us. It's totally incomprehensible. Paul, speaking about it here, revels in that love. And so, when he's writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, he says how he's praying for them. I kneel before the Father. He says in verse 17, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing that God should love us. Incomprehensible love. And this incomprehensible love, we could spend forever thinking about it because to take it in is amazing. It's, it's, it's hard to take it in when you understand the holiness of God and you know the depths of your own heart. God has freely chosen to love his people. But it is undeniable. 
It is rock solid. In, back in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37, it says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Have you ever noticed it doesn't say through him who loves us, but through him who loved us. Why is it in the past tense? It's not that he stopped loving us. Rather, it's talking about something that goes back in time, something that is indeed before time. In verse 29, we've already seen this some weeks back, those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. Or those God knew beforehand. God sees all the masses of humanity. And if you belong to him, before time was, before you existed, he looked into the future and he saw you and said, I know you. I know you. Relationship. He knew beforehand. His love has always been. But specifically, his love was shown 2,000 years ago when Jesus was crucified in our place, dying in our place, suffering in our place, the wrath of God on our behalf. He has shown his love. So in chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's undeniable that he loves us because he, he's demonstrated his love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sure, you, the fact hasn't escaped you that this year is the 400th anniversary of the publication of the authorized version of the Bible. And um, I've been delving into one of the versions that came just before that, Tyndale, the great translator who gave his life so that the plowman should know, the boy who follows the plow should know the word of God. And uh, I've been reading, dipping into Tyndale's New Testament. And here on that verse, God demonstrates his own love. Tyndale put it this way, God setteth out his love that he hath to us. God setteth out. I thought, what a lovely expression. When this meeting's over, we'll go downstairs. I hope you'll come downstairs and join us. And you might well find Dan Lucking setting out the bookstore. Please visit the bookstore. There plenty of books. Anyway, we won't do the plug. But he will set it out. There's the shutter that goes up and then a table, and he sets out the books. And why does he do that? Because he wants people to buy them. He wants people to see them. He's setting them out. It's, and God has set out his love. So, look at this. Look at this. Set out. Where, where's that set out? At the cross. It's demonstrated. It's set out. It's undeniable. You see it. God loves me. There it is at the cross. He's demonstrated his love. He's, he setteth out his love that he hath to us at the cross. It's undeniable. However we feel, whatever we go through, look at the cross. That's for you. The Son of God, hanging in shame, deserted by his Father because of sin defiling him. And it was my sin. It was your sin and his taking it. He could have avoided it. He could have said, no, I'm not doing this. But he took the cup. It's, God setteth out his love. Look at this. It's undeniable. 
it's incomprehensible. How could God love someone like me? But he can't deny it. It's there at the cross. And it's, it's very clearly love, not bland love for everyone. Where Paul sets this out here in, in this verse in, that we're looking at in verse 35 of Romans chapter 8, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What the translation doesn't really communicate is that that word us is emphatic. It's emphasized in the original. And so you could, as it were, underline it in order to bring that out. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's not everyone. It's us, the people being spoken about in this whole section. Those God foreknew. Those God predestined. Those He called. Those He justified. Us who are in Christ. Us who are in Christ when Christ was crucified, when those, those of us who, who have always been loved by God, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Us who are there at the cross for whom God has demonstrated His love. Now that love will never end. It's inextinguishable. Whatever happens to us, And Paul sets out some things that could happen. Trouble, hardship, persecution, and so on. Whatever happens to us does not affect the reality of God's love and the quality of that love. Now you might say, well, it's all right, Paul. Uh, We could imagine Paul perhaps is writing this or dictating it. Imagine him perhaps wrongly. Imagine him in a book-line study and he's writing this book, the book of Romans the great epistle in the New Testament. Paul is writing it, and he's loads of Bible quotes and so on. You think, yeah, okay, it's all right for you, Paul, writing this stuff. But out in the real world, it's not that easy. Well, no, Paul is not in some ivory tower. When Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, and then he mentions some things, trouble, hardship, persecution, these are not just things that come to mind. These are things that he knows about. One writer has said, uh, he's not just talking about stubbing your toe or spoiling, staining a nice clean shirt. He's not talking about minor problems. When Paul speaks here, he's talking out of the depths of horrific experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he momentarily lifts the veil on some of the things that he's gone through. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Well, verse 23, he said, I've worked harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move, been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, and so on. Because he lists it all like there, it's easy to just read it off. It doesn't imagine. Imagine this summer you're going on holiday, and you're going on holiday to Europe, and you're on a cross-channel ferry, and something goes wrong, and the, the sirens sound, and you, know, you, you never actually watched 
the, the safety video at the start, whether you are leaving Dover or wherever, because no one watches the safety video, and suddenly the siren is sounding, and it's real. Got to get, where, where were those lifeboats? Anyway, the general panic. And imagine, just imagine if that happened, and you're in a lifeboat, the lifeboat is, uh, is, is lowered, and then as you move away from the ferry to your horror, you watch that ferry go down. If that happened to you, you would tell that story to anyone who would listen for the rest of your life. Someone says, I'm going to France. You're, oh, did I ever tell you about... You know, <laughs> yes, you did. Imagine if that happened to you three times. That's what Paul's talking about. Three times I was shipwrecked. Or imagine you were in a Middle Eastern country and you offended the authorities and you were sentenced to be flogged. Well, if that happened to you, you'd be sure to tell people about it when you came back, if you survived. But what if you were flogged and then on another occasion flogged again and then on another occasion flogged again, and on another occasion flogged again, and each time it's 39 lashes. That's what Paul's talking about. And can you imagine? You look at some of the things he's gone through. He said, oh, and once, once I was stoned. <laughs> oh, well, only once. <sighs> look at the story there. And it's that man who is writing this in Romans chapter 8. It's the man who has gone through that. He's not just talking about stubbing your toe. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What happens to us doesn't mean that God doesn't love us anymore. It doesn't separate us from God's love. God's love never promises to smooth the path and remove all pain. This whole chapter, Romans chapter 8, the, one of the major themes is the path of suffering. Call to glory and suffering. That's, that's what it's about. Sharing in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. God's love does not smooth the path. God's love does not intervene to remove the pain. Always. Sometimes not at all. In that situation where the path is difficult, where the pain is unbearable, His love is still there. That's what it's saying. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. His love holds us even when we feel He's just not there at all, when in our desperation we feel He's forgotten us. Read just some of the Psalms and you'll see some of the things that they experience. Perhaps the bleakest Psalm, Psalm 77. Psalm 77 and uh, verse 7 the psalmist says, well, the psalm begins, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. 
I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. And he speaks there about being unable to sleep. And just, where's God? And then verse, 70, verse 7, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? See, this guy's going through it. He's, where's God? And that, in verse 8, his unfailing love, has it failed? Has it vanished forever? Where's God in this situation? God sometimes takes us through a path like that, where there doesn't seem to be any answer. And we cry out to God. We screw up all the faith we know how to muster. And nothing, nothing comes. It seems like heaven is closed against us. Has God forgotten to be merciful? There are times like that. And in times like that, when God seems most absent, His love is still there. That's what it's saying. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Sometimes, of course... His love can be most real in the time of pain. Sometimes in a situation of pain, it's like, you think, is God there at all? For other times, it's in the intensity of anguish and pain that God is most precious. And it's one of those curious things. You, you almost think, I'm glad I'm going through this. No, I'm not glad I'm going through it, but God's here. Remember that wonderful promise back in Isaiah 50, 43? In Isaiah 43 uh, and verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God. So it doesn't say you won't pass through waters, you won't have to go through fire. No, when you go through those things, God says, I'm with you. God's special presence in the time of difficulty. Why did Paul go through all that he went through? Well, because God's love was there. Because God was with him. I am with you. So might we fall away when the pressure is on? Well, the point is that God's love will not fail. Our love for him might certainly waver. And doubts will come, and there can be the anguish that we see expressed in Psalm 77. But what it's not talking here about our love for God. It's talking about His love for us. Who shall separate us from me loving Christ? Well, that might well waver to my shame. But His love for me won't. Why? Because it's eternal. Before time was, he set his love on us. And that love was purposeful. The, the end of the process is glorified. Writing to the Philippians, Paul says, we have been called heavenwards in Christ Jesus. The love of God is like a huge magnet that is drawing us towards heaven. It's a very strong magnet. And it's never going to stop. And God is drawing us towards him. His love is pulling us through life. When we feel, is God there? Yes, his love is there all the time. That's what Paul is saying. wonder how Paul felt when he's being stoned, when he's being flogged, 
when he's shipwrecked, all of those things, the doubts will come. Yeah, but God's love didn't fail. God's love will never let go. It's an old hymn, or love that will not let me go. It doesn't let us go. It never will let us go. Nothing can separate us from God's love. His love will hold us. The love of Christ is an amazingly strong love because it took Jesus to the cross. That's how strong it is. And it's never going to stop. And it's real love. Paul's position here is not theorizing. These are, these are not just nice ideas. Paul's tested this. And he says in verse 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons and so on, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I am convinced, he says. How is he convinced? Well, he clearly knows the Scriptures. He quotes them again and again. He knows what the Scripture tells him about the love of God. He, he knows, he's convinced because of the, the gospel events, because of the cross. There, God has demonstrated his love. He's convinced. But he's also convinced in his experience. Because do you remember what he says back in, in chapter 5 and verse 8, chapter 5 of Romans and verse 8? He says, God, uh, sorry, verse 5. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. God has poured out his love into our hearts. That's an experience. Paul knows it from the Scriptures. He knows it because of what Jesus did at the cross, but he knows it in his heart as well. God pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is real, and it's to be felt, and it's to be therefore experienced. That prayer of Paul's that we looked at a few moments back in Ephesians chapter 3, when he's saying, for this reason I kneel before the Father, and I pray that out of his glorious riches he will strengthen you with power uh, by his Spirit and your inner being and so on. He says, I want you to have power together with all the saints to, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love. Not just grasp it, but know it. To know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Isn't it tragic to find someone who is loved, but they're unaware of it? It happens. It happens, I guess, all too often. It can happen in the, the parent-child relationship where parents sincerely love their kids, but their kids don't necessarily feel loved. There are some parents who, for whatever reason, know that they love their children, but they find it hard to say it. Find it hard to tell that they're just embarrassed or whatever, or they just don't feel it's necessary. And they think, surely they know that they're loved because I do this and I do that. But actually, say it to your child, to to hug your child, to let them know there are many kids who are genuinely loved, but they're just unaware of it. It can happen in the marriage relationship, husband and wife, comfortable together, 
been together maybe for some years now, loved and yet curiously unaware of it because it's never said. Yes, things are done, but where are the words? Where's the expression of affection? It's, it's possible to be loved, but to be quite unaware of it and to actually feel the opposite, to feel, I don't think they love me. I think love has died. It needs to be expressed. It needs to be said. It needs to be shown. It needs to be verbalized and, and, it, and, and left so that there's no doubt about it. Sometimes the problem is not in an inability to show love, it's an inability to receive love. And sometimes love can be expressed in words and in action and in demonstration of affection, and yet the person at the receiving end just can't receive it for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's because of hurt in the past, and there's a kind of guarding of your heart now. I'm never going to be hurt again. I'm never going to let the barriers down. I hear those words, but I'm, I'm protecting myself against possibly getting betrayed, possibly getting let down. And some people just cannot receive love, no matter how much it's expressed, how much it's said. Some people don't receive love because they've opened the door to self-pity. And once that enemy of self-pity gets in, it becomes your friend, and you want to think, poor me. What I've gone through, poor me. And several of you, you, you cannot receive love because it would, self-pity would then die. No, you're holding on to self-pity. And so you crave affection and you, you drain people dry in, in, in getting affection from them. But actually, no, it's still poor little me. It's a major enemy. To be loved and yet not receiving it. And we can come to God like that where the Bible tells us about his love. History shows us, he's he's set out his love, he's demonstrated his love. Somehow, the barriers are up, and we don't receive it. We can fail to see even that it really matters Surely there are more important things to get on, to be doing this, be active in the life of the church, busy doing things. Surely that's what matters. Well, in a marriage, is that what matters? No, you want to express love. Not just be busy, busy, busy all the time. It's about love. And here it's talking about the love of God. And and Paul doesn't just mention it once. The love of Christ, Him who loved us. The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul knows that love and it's real love and it's love to be experienced. The Holy Spirit pours out God's love into our hearts. Are we receiving it? Or do we say, no, come on, I'm a man. (laughs) We don't go into this touchy-feely stuff. Is that your reaction? Or it doesn't matter. Well, If you think there are more important things than this, there are not. There really is nothing more important, more wonderful than the love of God. It's possible for God's love to be a doctrine. 
and it yields absolutely no comfort when the pressure is on. And Paul is speaking here about when the pressure is on. And so you can get kind of cerebral believers. It's all in their brain. They're unmoved and unemotional, but they're sound. They believe the truth, absolutely sound in terms of biblical doctrine, while quite unmoved by it. Sound and very dry. Very dry. And therefore, very at risk when pressure comes, when trouble comes. Because when your brain is besieged with with the pain or the difficulty or the confusion that you're going through, then you need the love of God. You need, well, we have that reading. You, You need to have roots that go down so that in the time of drought, you stay green. Rooted and grounded in love, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. If if our Christianity becomes a matter of doing things and believing things, but not feeling things, then we're at risk. Of course, if it's just a matter of feeling things and not believing, we're equally at risk. No, Paul knows the truth. He's convinced what wonderful doctrine is setting out here. But it's not all cerebral. He says, no, he's poured out his love into my heart. And he says to the Ephesians, I want you to know his love. I want you to know it. Pass his understanding, I want you to know it. I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so you know it. It's experience. You unmoved? Have you got dry? You're just doing things, believing things. But where's the love of God? That's what Paul's talking about here. In John chapter 15, we see part of Jesus' preparation, preparing his disciples for all the trouble they're going to go through when they're going to see their Savior arrested and crucified. And Jesus knows what is ahead for them. And he says this in John chapter 15 and verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. It's an obligation. We've got to do something about this. Remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. You might say, oh, well then it's all just about obeying the rules, is it? No, 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 no. It's about love. And if, if we love Jesus, and if we're remaining in his love, then his will becomes very important to us. Not because we've got into legalism, but because we've got into love. We love him. And so, we want to walk with him. Remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. We're not just cold and unemotional. We're saying, what does he want me to do? What does he say? I want to do it. I want to walk close to him. I want to remain in his love. In the book of Jude, last but one book in the New Testament, Jude 
Verse 1, Jude addresses those who have been called who are loved by God, loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Those are the ones he is writing to. And then in verse 21, he says, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. We are loved by God, now keep yourself in God's love. You've got to do something about it. It doesn't just kind of happen. Action is called for. Jesus says, remain in my love. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Love needs to be received. It's got to be maintained, and it needs to be expressed. That's true in any relationship. It's true between husband and wife. It's true between parents and children. Love needs to be received. It's got to be maintained. It's got to be worked at. And it needs to be expressed. Or so in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. To receive his love, to maintain it, keep ourselves in his love, and to express it. How do we do that? Well, we could, at the end of this meeting, invite people to come forward and pray for you. And you'll have an experience, then you go out from here, and the problem is that by lunchtime you might have forgotten the experience. Yeah, that's valid, but can be temporary. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? How do we remain in his love? We've got to absorb his word, haven't we? If we love him, Jesus said, obey my commands. Well, then we get to grips with them. We absorb the Scripture. We read it. We pray it back to God. We do what it says. We worship God in the light of it. We're we're, we're getting into relationship with Him. We love Him, so we love His Word. And we feed on it. And we pray it. And we live it. It gets hold of us. Yes, even in times of difficulty, Paul has gone through all the stuff he's gone through, but he loves God's Word. He can quote whole chunks of it, and he does in this letter. But also, we ask God to break through the barriers that maybe we've put up. That defense mechanism where we don't want to get disappointed, and so we never really ask God to do anything for us. Maybe we've asked before and we didn't feel anything happened and now the defenses are up. We say, oh God, break through any barrier that you see I've put up. If my heart has become hard, melt me. Because I want to know your love. I want to know this love. I want this to be the strength of my life so that whatever happens, if if something really cruel suddenly overtakes me and I'm really going through it, if I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, I want to know you're with me. I want to know your love. So right now we need God to break down barriers in us. We do what we can do. We're going to come to his word. We're going to take hold of it but say, oh God, melt my heart. I want to be sensitive to you again responsive to you again, just thrilled with your love. The Apostle Paul is not just an academic. He's thrilled. He's enthusing. He's reveling in God's love. You see it again and again in what he says. So we see here, there are two truths which are both equally true. Trouble 
and pain are our destiny. We're called to suffer. That is true. We cannot develop a theology that says there's no suffering. It's all about suffering. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. If the world hated me, he said, it will hate you also. Yet there is a path that involves pain. Not only persecution, but also sometimes physical pain, sickness, things that happen to us. We go through it. Bereavement, disappointment, tragedy, it happens. That, that's a path. God, the love of God doesn't always smooth the path, doesn't always remove the pain. That is, that is there. But there's another path, another thing that is equally true. God loves us. Trouble and pain? Love. The two things are true. And we need the one to affect the other. So we go through things. The love of God. Love that will not let me go. Where we're just thrilled. You think of, well, we don't sing the old hymns now, but you, you get any old hymn book. See the hymns, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Wonderful hymns where people knew the love of God. Wonderful love. It's it's there, as is the path of suffering. And God's love has prepared for us something that is so wonderful, because he loves us, he's prepared for us something that is so wonderful that Whatever path we travel, and think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, all the things that he's gone through. Do you know what he says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians? He says, our light and momentary troubles. All that we go through is momentary compared with what God's love has prepared. Because you could say, what if he loves me? Why doesn't he get rid of the pain? Well, because it's the path to that. It's what's ahead. Because he loves us. He's not a stern disciplinarian. He loves us. And the path to that prize is through difficulty. You say, oh, but the difficulty is too much for us. Yeah, but it's a light momentary trouble compared with that. And the love of God. Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. 2,000 years preparing. Hey, it's going to be good. And any path that leads to that is worth it. Paul is not obsessed with self-pity. You don't get a trace of it. Even when he's talking about those things in 2 Corinthians 11, there's no self-pity there. Because he he knows where he's heading. And it's the love of God, this magnet that is drawing him on. And he wouldn't want, want to be on any other path. Paul is thrilled with God's love. Are we? Are we equally thrilled? Are we saying it's better to be in Christ and maybe lose everything than to have everything and lose Christ? Hey, the love of God is more precious, more wonderful, and more satisfying than anything, anything else. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing. For those who are in Christ, us who are in him, who can separate us from the love of Christ? It's real, it's true, it's demonstrated. Now it needs to get through to us. Let's pray.